This is Storical, a monthly podcast and companion piece to Immortal Perfumes. In this series, we'll do a deep dive into the life and times of history and literature's most intriguing subjects, then discuss the best pieces of pop culture where you can get your historical fiction fix. I'm your host, JT Seams, the potions master at Immortal Perfumes. Join me on a journey through time and the ghosts of words past. This month's entry is dedicated to the life of the immortal voodoo queen of New Orleans. September, my dear listeners, and welcome back for another month of Storical. Spooky season started on August 30th with Mary Shelley's birthday, so I figured let's keep that going with the story of Marie Laveau, the voodoo queen of New Orleans. Now, if you've seen American Horror Story Coven, which, full disclosure, that's where I first heard about her, or if you associate voodoo with horror, then yes, Marie Laveau's story is spooky. However, when you actually get into the nitty gritty of her life and dig deeper than the many exaggerated stories about both the woman and voodoo itself, what you find is actually not spooky at all. It's a story of mercy, generosity, and serious hustle. A while back, someone wrote to me that they would like to have more positive stories about people of color featured on my blog and in podcasts. And I think the real story of Marie Laveau is just such a story. So with that said, Imagine yourself in Congo Square, the scent of Paolo Santo in the air, as we take a look at the life of Marie Laveau. Chapter 1. Free Woman of Color A little warning here, much of Marie's life is shrouded in mystery. For instance, her baptism record wasn't even found until the year 2000. A lot of the information I'm going to present to you has a big question mark over it, so keep that in mind as we go along. The commonly accepted date of Marie's birth was September 10th, 1801. 1794 is another year that gets thrown around, and we'll get into why later. But in terms of orienting you in history, Thomas Jefferson had just been sworn in as president a few months prior, and the Louisiana Purchase is still two years away. All that said, we need to talk a little about the colonial history of New Orleans to properly understand all the forces at work during Marie's time. The city was first a colony of France in 1718. In 1763, France lost the colony to Spain after the Seven Years' War. In 1803, the colony reverted to French rule before the land was ultimately sold to the United States. This is important because the city was unique in its treatment of people of African descent. France and Spain were Catholic countries and were more humane in their treatment of slaves than Americans. Now, more humane when you're talking about slavery doesn't mean much, but there were a few laws in place that ultimately led to Marie holding a unique position in society. Under the Code Noir, in effect during French and Spanish rule, slave owners had to baptize all slaves in the Catholic faith and also had to give them every Sunday off. The other unique thing they were allowed to do was to earn wages and take side jobs, so long as it didn't interfere with their work for their owners. This enabled slaves to build wealth and by their freedom. This led to a whole class of free black people in New Orleans. And this is how we get to Marie. Marie's great-grandmother was brought to Louisiana on a slave ship from Senegal. She was sold to a plantation owner named Henry Roche. Her daughter, Catherine, was Marie Laveau's grandmother. Catherine grew up on that plantation and Henry Roche fathered her children. And let's keep in mind, even if Catherine was willing, which we have no idea about, this was rape because of the power dynamic between master and slave. Catherine's daughter, Marguerite, was Marie's mother, and in each of these generations, they were only around 13 years old when they birthed their children. 
Catherine became what was known as a marchand and sold food in the marketplace. She toiled and saved and was not only able to buy her freedom, she secured enough money to build a house on St. Anne Street in the French Quarter. Marie's mother, Marguerite, was then freed by her owner. Back in the day, there were really sketchy social events in New Orleans called quadroon balls. During this time, they accounted for every drop of blood that ran through your veins, and a quadroon was a term for someone who had a white parent and a mulatto parent. People known as quadroons were light-skinned enough to be white-passing. These were balls where it was encouraged for mixed-race women and girls to meet up with white men. The girls and women would then become concubines for the men, many of whom were already married. This was how Marguerite met a wealthy French plantation owner named Henry Darcantel. It's been commonly told that Marie's father was a white plantation owner, but actually her dad was Charles Laveau, who was the mulatto son of another white plantation owner and a wealthy businessman. For Marguerite, it seems like this might have been a brief affair while she continued in her arrangement with Darcantel. And through this complicated and traumatic history was how Marie became the first woman in her family to be born free. Chapter 2. The Hairdresser Almost nothing is known about Marie's childhood and upbringing other than that she was a devout Roman Catholic who attended Mass every single day. It is likely that while living on the Darkentel plantation, Marie, whose brothers and sisters were all fathered by Henry Darkentel, not her father, Charles Laveau, learned her skills for hairdressing. But that's really all we can say for sure. The next time she pops up, it was for her marriage to a free man of color who had come to New Orleans from Haiti, likely fleeing the Haitian Revolution, which, my dear listeners, that is a whole other rabbit hole to go down, and I'll direct you to some further listening at the end of the episode. His name was Jacques Paris, which is possibly the Frenchest name I've ever heard in my life. She had her first child by Jacques two years before they were married, common at the time in New Orleans. Jacques and Marie had two daughters, Felicité and Marie Angelie, but both died when they were children, likely prior to 1824. Jacques himself disappeared around 1824. No record of him was ever found but there's quite a lot of speculation. Yellow fever was a scourge at the time, and Marie was actually a natural nurse and healer who saved way more patients than actual doctors who, you know, injected their patients with mercury. It's speculated that in one of the yellow fever epidemics that periodically came through New Orleans, her daughters died, and it's also possible that Jacques died as well. Others speculate that Jacques left Marie and either tried his luck elsewhere in the States or went back to Haiti, which... If you research more on that, why would he do that? And then we get to the last piece of speculation where Marie's legend all started. People speculated that Marie killed Jacques with magic. People would whisper about it in the streets, and Marie henceforth went by the name The Widow Paris and never said anything to confirm or deny the rumors. So of course, the rumors grew. With her family gone, Marie had to support herself. Hairdressing was a common career path for many women of Marie's station, and Marie had a few tricks up her sleeve. Ever the self-promoter, she advertised her services at the courthouse and the marketplace. Marie Laveau would get invited to the homes of wealthy white women, and once there, had the same banter and sympathetic ear that a hairdresser today would use. She would then either pay off the family's slaves to be informants, or she would magically heal people of their ailments, and then they'd be Team Laveau, granting her both access to and information about their masters. The women she was doing hair for were from the upper crust. She would find out their secrets and then squirrel these secrets away for a rainy day. Say you're a senator's wife, and you're fearful that your husband is out in the streets behind your back. Marie would already know about his affair, and give informed counsel. 
or maybe a love potion. Chapter three, voodoo, New Orleans style. Now, according to legend, Marie learned her craft from a man known as Dr. John, who was a free man of color who had originally been brought over as a slave from Senegal and worked his way up to being kind of the guy when it came to New Orleans voodoo. Others speculate that Marie learned from her mother and grandmother. To that end, we need to talk a bit about voodoo itself. Voodoo has been demonized by white people since they first became aware of it when Africans were brought as slaves to the New World. At its heart, voodoo is a religion rooted in reverence for ancestors and spirits, as well as knowledge of herbs, poisons, and magical spells that could do everything from grant protection to a runaway slave to confounding your enemies. Like many other indigenous deities, there were crossover deities with the Catholic saints. Papa Legba is the intermediary between humans and spirits and is the same as St. Peter, who's the keeper of the keys of heaven. Because of these similarities, the French tolerated their religion. Now, I know what you may be wondering. If voodoo was a religion originating in Africa, why is it really only a thing in New Orleans, but not the rest of the southern United States? Well, that comes down to the Code Noir. New Orleans was under French and Spanish rule, and for them, it was against the law to separate slave children from their families. This meant that unlike slaves in other U.S. states at the time, they were able to keep their family ties intact and pass on their culture, language, traditions, and religions in a way that was impossible in areas of the United States where they had no qualms about separating families. So you've got this mesh of African voodoo and folk Catholicism, and that's what characterized Louisiana voodoo. One of the biggest and most profitable practices was Grigri, a protection charm. Voodoo was already popular in New Orleans when Marie Laveau arrived on the scene. However, its dark reputation left much to be desired from the upper crust of society. It was after meeting Dr. John that she learned the craft and incorporated her own Catholic-based beliefs to lure in those who might be put off by what was considered dark magic. Her rituals involved possession by loas, which were voodoo spirits, as well as prayer, incense, holy waters, and snakes. Chapter 4, Reign of the Queen during this time, Marie met the love of her life. Christophe Dumeny du Glapion was a Creole man descended from French nobility. The term Creole originally referred to French people born in the colony, not in France, but soon it became a word used by anyone born in Louisiana, black or white, mixed race or not. Black people could not marry white people, so Marie and Glapion were never officially married, but they lived together until his death 33 years later. Some reports estimate that they had as many as 15 children, but the only records we have confirm seven children, of which only two survived to adulthood, Marie-Alouis and Marie-Philomène. She named all her daughters Marie, and then gave them unique middle names that they went by, kind of like Marie Antoinette and her sisters, if you'll recall from the episode Marie Antoinette, the Last Queen of France. And now is the part where the magical part of her story begins. The first big turning point in her legend is the tale of the time a wealthy young man got into serious trouble and was destined for the gallows. His father, desperate, went to Marie Laveau for help with the promise of paying her a rich reward. She went to the courthouse with three hot peppers in her mouth and put them under the judge's chair. The case was dismissed and the wealthy man gave Marie her cottage on St. Anne Street. Okay, so we already know that the house part of that story is bogus because her grandmother had that house built, but Marie did have a reputation for helping prisoners and winning court cases. This was a story in circulation, and same as before with her first husband, she just kind of never confirmed nor denied it. Her trade consisted of the sale of Grigri, protection charm, love potions, hexes, and fortune telling. 
but it was her lavish rituals and ceremonies in Congo Square that brought her fame and established her as the reigning queen of voodoo in a city overrun with purported doctors and queens. Her earlier days as a hairdresser and confidant to the wealthy gave her an upper hand in her divination practices. Secrets, gossip, and paying off servants went a long way in establishing a fearful, all-knowing persona. She also had the dirt on judges, which probably played into how she won so many court cases. A description of her altar appeared in the New Orleans Daily Picayune and reads, It consists of a box about three feet square. Above this are three pyramidal boxes rising to a small apex on which is placed a small figure of the Virgin. The entire altar is draped in white. On each end of the shelving is a vase of green and white artificial flowers, and beside these, a smaller vase of pink and white camellias. In the center rests a prayer book in Spanish, and framed in gold leaning against the altar are hung saints' pictures around the walls of the cell. Before the altar is drawn, a curtain of white muslin, deeply fringed in silver filigree. Her Congo Square rituals, complete with a giant snake named Zombie, which was named after an African god, attracted crowds of people who were both black and white. Marie was equal opportunity when it came to her work, and that really helped her establish her reputation and is a testament to her business acumen. A lot of the fluff of her legend comes from curious or scared white people that were hiding in the distance watching her rituals and then embellishing what was actually going on. In addition to her work as a voodoo priestess, she was known for helping runaway slaves and taking in orphan children. She was seen as an integral matriarch in her community and was widely respected and feared. The one stain on her reputation is that she did own slaves. It was actually common for free people of color to own slaves at the time. Now, no one knows because there's no record of how she treated her slaves or what their jobs were, but the idea has been speculated that she bought slaves with the intention of setting them free. Her common-law husband, Glapion's family, was in the slave trade, and it was when she was with him that she engaged in the practice. The hint that she was actually something of a conductor on the Underground Railway was that on her altar, she had a statue of St. Maroon, who was the patron saint of runaway slaves. It's also known that she made protection charms for runaway slaves. So that's another piece we'll never know, but it does bring added complexity to her story. When Glapion died in 1855, he left Marie in financial duress from poor business speculations. She tried to have her birth certificate changed to qualify for financial help from the French military so she could get his military pension. It didn't work out though, and the house on St. Anne Street was sold. But as luck would have it, a friend bought it and let her continue living there. And she did until she died at the age of either 79 or 86 in 1881. That depends on which birth year you go by. Some thought she didn't die until 1897, and that's because there was a mysterious woman who went by Marie II. This was definitely not her daughter, Eloise, because she had died in 1862. Some scholars believe her daughter, Marie Philomène, took up the mantle, but wasn't as warm or as well-liked as Marie Laveau. She leaned hard into the scarier aspects of voodoo, very public rituals with blood and animal sacrifice and dark loas. This is more so where the horror film idea of Marie Laveau comes from, but people who knew Philomène said she was a strict Catholic with no love for voodoo, so maybe it wasn't her. In that case, another woman went by Marie Laveau until 1897, after which point the Laveau legend faded into obscurity for roughly 40 years. Chapter 5, The Laveau Legend That was the real story, as far as we know it, of Marie Laveau. While Angela Bassett is an absolute queen, the American horror story portrayal of her is only correct in that she was a hairdresser. But if you'd like to continue your education on Marie Laveau, I have some treats for you. 
First off, if you want to dive more into the Haitian Revolution, there is an episode of Footnoting History that is very fascinating, and I will link to it in the show notes. For nonfiction, I relied heavily on the magic of Marie Laveau embracing the spiritual legacy of the voodoo queen of New Orleans by Denise Alvarado. This book is great because it's more recent, so it has the latest scholarship and research on Marie, but it's also written in a more friendly, personal way than most nonfiction books. And I know you'll all love this. After the biography part finishes, there's a whole spell book for you to learn more about how voodoo really works. Highly recommend. In terms of podcasts, if you want a hilarious telling of Marie's life, check out Queen's podcast, which I've mentioned on here before. The hosts Katie and Nathan are hilarious and delightful, and it's kind of like the drunk history version of podcasts. If you want a more academic telling of her life with a huge side of feminism, listen to the episode on her life by Deviant Women. I've also mentioned their podcast before. I believe it was from the Margaret Sanger episode. But check the show notes for links to both shows. The Deviant Women one is especially interesting because one of the hosts is working on a dissertation about women, magic, and witchcraft. So worth a listen. One thing I learned on this podcast that I hadn't seen anywhere else was that a big reason why we know who Marie Laveau is is because none other than Zora Neale Hurston went undercover in New Orleans to learn about voodoo and wrote a whole book on it. She talked to many people who were alive when Marie was. That book is called Hoodoo in America and was published in 1931. In terms of movies, there's a big budget biopic on her that's been in the works since like 2016, but seems to be stuck in Hollywood purgatory. So no idea when that will happen or if it will be a straight biopic or more of a horror movie. I hope biopic. In the meantime, there's a Marie Laveau adjacent indie film I found called Dinner with the Alchemist. It looks really bad, but also fun. I haven't had a chance to watch it, but it exists, so you can find that. Then, of course, you've got American Horror Story Coven with Angela Bassett just absolutely slaying it. Not historically accurate, but one of my favorite seasons of the show. There are a couple of fictions about Marie Laveau from her perspective. I wasn't able to read them because the libraries in Seattle are still closed due to the pandemic, but here's a few that I think sound interesting. First, there's a trilogy from Jewel Parker Rhodes, and book one is called Voodoo Dreams. It's followed up with Voodoo Season, Moon, and Hurricane. That's actually four books, but Voodoo Dreams is the prequel. Second, there's one that looks to be out of print by Francine Prose, just called Marie Laveau. Whatever media you end up looking further into, I hope you remember that Beyond the Legend was a real woman who was complicated, generous, and a wonderkind at business and self-promotion. That's all I have for you this week, my dear listeners. If you're so inclined, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps others find the show and join me next month as we dive into the life of the author who once upon a midnight dreary brought us fantastic terrors that we never felt before. (laughs) 